Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Good morning. My name is Leanne Harling, and I'm here at the EACTS in Milan with two pioneers in pectus surgery to talk about advances in treatment of pectus deformities. Here I have Mustafa Yuxel yes. uh, from Istanbul. Istanbul. And uh, Ian Hunt from St. George's Hospital in London. Hi, Leanne. Nice to meet you both, and I'm very pleased to be with you today. Perhaps we could start by talking about your individual practices. It's such a, it's such a diverse area of practice. And then we can move on to slightly more specific and uh, topics within the, within the subject matter. Yes. Uh, I'd like to talk about the uh, surgery of the pectus uh, deformity. I started 2000 uh, with the new procedure, you know, the NAS procedure, new uh, famous and uh, procedure in the uh, pectus uh, reconstruction. And uh, I have done to, uh, until now 1,500 1, pectus surgery. Uh, NAS plus uh, the Abramson procedure. But the, uh, the beside the uh, surgery, there is the breast therapy and vacuum therapy. I think the uh, latest uh, famous treatment is the breast therapy in the pectus carinatum and then vacuum therapy in the pectus excavatum. This means the surgery and then there is the balance between the surgery and the breast therapy and uh, the conservative therapy means the vacuum therapy. And uh, that's all. This is my practice about the fake statement. And Mr. Hunt? So I'm based in St. George's. I've been practicing since 2009. Um, and have been performing practice surgery really since that period. Um, I'm very interested in the kind of comprehensive approach to patients with pectus deformities. The, it's a multifaceted problem, and uh, certainly I, I agree with Mustafa. I think uh, having options around different surgical and non-surgical treatments for these sorts of patients is really the future. I think a combination of treatments may well be the right option for some patients. I think physical therapy is super yes. important in patients. There's a lot of issues with musculoskeletal problems, posture-related issues that we see in pectus deformities, and I certainly emphasize that importance from my patients. I think in terms of pectus carinatum, for me, um, there's a, a cohort of patients that benefit from bracing therapy as a first-line treatment, and it's often dictated by the degree of flexibility they have still in their chest wall, which is often age-related, but not always necessarily. And then Mustafa's pioneered the role of Abraham's procedures and, and other surgical treatments for pectus carinatum, and I think that will be an interesting evolution in terms of practice, and I'm particularly interested in trying to combine um, minimal access 
surgery to reduce or recreate flexibility with the pectus carinatum patients and then use some form of bracing therapy as an adjunct to, to their treatment. So that's a particular area I'm interested in and certainly we've started looking at small cohorts of patients where that's been very effective. In terms of pectus excavatum, Mustafa's been a, a pioneer in developing uh, procedures developed by Donald Nuss in relation to the Nuss procedure. And I think that's a very interesting area that you're increasingly looking at different ways of treating patients with uh, modifications of the Nuss procedure yes. using different techniques, different numbers of bars, different positions of bars to support patients with pectus excavatum. Yeah. Um, and I still think in my practice there is a role for the modified ravage in some small patients, small groups of patients where they have such a severe deformity and particularly a very distorted sternum. So I still recognize a small number of patients where for me the sternal rotation is still an issue for uh, performing a NUS procedure to give a, a very uh, satisfactory result. So I still have a small group of patients where we offer that rather traditional but very useful operation. So I think coming, at, coming to the patient with a comprehensive approach, um, you, uh, uh, combining lots of different treatment options, including physical therapies, I think it's the way forward. Yes, I so think so. For both of you, in your initial assessment of these patients, because it's a very holistic approach required for, for these, these kind of difficult cases often, how do you go about setting up the initial consultation with the patient, the perioperative care, because it's something that obviously needs to be right. Yeah. What's your protocol, as it were? I, I, uh, I'd like to stress about the pectus sur surgery is not the cosmetic surgery. I mean, there's the big conflict some uh, country, the like the England. I mean, uh, they say it is the reconstructive surgery, but uh, not the the completely the cosmetic surgery because of the some of the patient i think 30 percent or 40 percent patient has need the reconstruction for the de their health not the, their cosmetic reason i mean um, i i decided before the operation how to prepare the patient uh, usually the deformity if the deformity is mild or the um, large uh, before operation, if the patient has no complaint, I decide the operation, mainly NAS operation. And it's some uh, complex deformity, I am doing the complex uh, operation, NAS plus Abramson operation. It is called the sandwich operation. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if the, uh, before, the, uh, for the carinatum patient, I decide just, I calculate the pressure the, the deformity pressure, if deformity pressure low, uh, less than uh, 10 kilogram uh, per surface, and uh, I started the breast therapy. Breast therapy is most, most favorable therapy, I think, in the carinatum patient. If the uh, pressure is the high, just I send the patient directly the Abramson operation. Um, I mean, how do you work up your... Yeah, it's, I mean, patients. interesting. We, we started the bracing therapy about four years ago. We've now treated around 300 patients with bracing therapy with about 180 patients with good outcomes, completed their programs. Um, we started introducing a, a pressure gauge to our practice about a year ago. Uh, we measure a PSI as, as, a, as an initial assessment, and then we follow that patient up with repeat PSIs. Um, the pressure assessment, I think, is really helpful, particularly for uh, a novice starting a program. I think it gives you an, a, a quantifiable measure of flexibility. I think 
um, Mustafa has magic fingers. He can <laughs> measure pressure very easily. But I think if you have that, don't have that level of experience, I think it's a useful adjunct. And I found for us, um, we use a, a cutoff of 14 psi. Um, that seems to be a cutoff for the degree of flexibility. If it's less than 14, there's still a degree of flexibility in the chest wall to allow a bracing therapy to leave the patient with a successful and most importantly a permanent correction. That's one of the really important elements yeah. of bracing therapy, not to offer somebody a treatment option which doesn't give them a permanent correction. Um, 14 PSI seems to be a magic number. Um, I think if it's less than 10 PSI, I would yes. agree with Mustafa, I think that would be a would be a very good candidate for bracing therapy. I think between 10 and 14, I think you need to counsel the patient that they may not get a complete correction, but generally we find that they will. Um, over 14 PSI, that's where it becomes more difficult. And I think that's where different techniques, yeah, yeah. surgical techniques may have, um, may evolve, which allow those groups of patients to be treated. Um, for us, around pectus carinatum and bracing therapy specifically, what we spend a lot of do time doing is developing a program around the commitment to bracing. So bracing is all about compliance. Yeah. And the, the failure rates amongst uh, papers around the world is being the issue of compliance. So what we've found is we, we have a very prescriptive program and we work very hard to make sure the patient follows that program because fundamentally if the brace is not being worn, it, it won't work. So, so that's really a big emphasis for our program that we, we use that technique to, you know, that, that, the idea of a program, a prescriptive program of bracing therapy with, a, with a, a tailored approach to each patient has really made the program very successful. But it, it's a lot of work and, yeah. you know, a lot of commitment by the patients. I would like to say something more here at this point. Uh, in the country, must be special center for the treatment of the pectus patient because of the like the transplant. Mm. Uh, I know the Ian has a uh, nice center to collect the pectus patient and then to decide this way is the breast therapy first and then surgery second. Uh, or another option. Uh, also the excavatum patient, first the vacuum therapy, also the vacuum therapy, and then uh, start the exercise program or something else, uh, and also psychological uh, mm. support for this patient. That's why, I mean, in the, for example, in London or in Newcastle, any, any uh, other way, uh, experienced surgeon, experienced uh, a chest physician must be together and start the program, yeah. not the individual surgery or the treatment. Because of, I I have learned in this therapy 15 years. I mean, N initially I have n never known anything mm. uh, 15 years ago. But now I know I need the center, I need the chest physician, I need the therapist. That's why I offer the every country has a special center for pectus treatment, mm. not only a surgeon, I mean. Uh, I mean, from a UK perspective, we're currently being challenged within the NHS to justify how pectus surgery is uh, effective in terms of functional improvement of patients. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute regarding pectus excavatum specifically. But um, the direction of travel is we have to justify these procedures, whether it's bracing therapy or surgical procedures. And I would absolutely agree with Mustafa. The UK experience is that, for example, only 300 cases a year are performed for pectus surgery around the whole country. And if you look at where those 
operations are being performed. It may only be in four or five centres. So you need to concentrate the level of experience in, a, in an otherwise quite a small number of procedures to get the experience that, that Mustafa has and that you need to develop to allow patients a very much more comprehensive approach to their treatment. Yes. So be able to offer every option that's available in a, in a center which has an experience with physiotherapy, chest physician yeah. support, cardiology support. So that I think is the future again, to focus you know, everybody's attention on developing these specialist centers. Yes. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think so. Um, yeah. yep. I mean, I, I think we need to touch on the rather diver diverse issue of function. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of discussion around pectus excavatum specifically and functional issues. Yes. Um, I would echo Mustafa's point around patients having symptoms. Certainly in our cohort of excavatum patients, I would suggest a third to towards 50% of patients will come to see me with symptoms. Those symptoms are very specific. The symptoms are usually breathlessness on exertion, a feeling of fatigability, yeah. often exertionally related, and can be quite profound. And the difficulty at the moment is there is a disconnect between what patients are complaining of and what investigations we are using to investigate these problems. And I think we're playing catch-up. So I think a transthoracic echocardiogram in a non-specialist hands is going to be normal in the majority yes. of cases, yeah, regardless so. of the severity of the deformity. What we're finding in our practice is that as our cardiologists become more familiar with seeing patients with yes. pectus excavatum, they're starting to recognize there's nuances, particularly around exertional functional problems. Yes. And certainly concentrating on areas such as tricuspid valve morphology is a very interesting area. And we've found, particularly we're using cardiac MRI, that we're starting to identify morphological problems with the heart, which weren't previously identified. So I think there is a functional element and we're just not identifying it because some of the investigations I don't think are sensitive enough, and yeah. particularly doing a simple transthoracic echocardiogram, I don't think it's good enough for patients that we're dealing with. And not least the windows can be very poor quality as well. Yeah, I think another reason for the center, for the team, uh, after the Nuss and Abramson operation, we uh, leave the bar inside two or three years. In this time, the patient need the psychological support and medical uh, follow-up and that's why you every I mean 24 hours the, the surgeon and the therapist can be uh, eligible for the patient if the patient take the phone and then you know, somebody uh, reply them uh, as soon as I mean mm. that's why it is necessary the team uh, 24 hours and all year, uh, all time to follow up this patient. Yeah, I would agree. Can I ask about your functional assessment of the patients? Do you have a protocol for preoperative uh, assessment? Yes, uh, just I'd like to say, uh, first of all, uh, we, we are doing the uh, lung function test and uh, just chest x-ray. If the patient has a complaint, we send the echocardiogram and the blood test, and uh, that's all. I mean, and the anesthesiologist consultation. Mm -hmm. And it was simple, but just uh, option the echocardiogram if the patient has a complaint. Otherwise, just test x-ray, ECG, and then uh, function test and blood test. Mm. Yourself? Very similar, similar approach, and, um, but sending to a specific cardiologist? 
who is used to dealing with juveniles, because most of my patients are young adults or, or children. Um, particularly, um, cardiologists are interested in morphological exertional problems. So we're lucky at St. George's to have quite a uh, robust cardiology group that have an interest in uh, young athletes, uh, particularly with hypercardiomyopathy hyper type problems. So we have an advantage that we can send our patients to see this sort of group of cardiologists, and we've, we've found that's very helpful. Cardiac MR seems to be quite useful in some instances. So we're exploring different cardiological investigations that are identifying problems with our yes. patients. And the severity of symptoms often dictate what level of investigation we will take the patient to. I, just to add to what Mustafa has said, it's interesting, um, so I, 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 I'm a thoracic surgeon, I perform lung resections like Mustafa, yeah. uh, I do most of my operations keyhole, and when I started doing those operations back in 2009, I was struck by the volume of patients I was operating on, how improved their symptoms were of pain were after the surgery, but it took a volume of patients to see, and it was something quite nuanced, and I think, again, it reflects the importance of having pectus patients being monitored, looked after in specialist centers because it's only with volume do you start understanding that patients with symptoms of, of uh, breathlessness on exertion, for example, when they have their operation, particularly when they've recovered from the surgery, their symptoms are often improved. And it's only when you see lots of patients telling you on a regular basis, I feel better. I feel better. The constrictive feeling they often complain about is, has gone. And it's a very interesting thing I've developed as my practice has grown, that the volume of patients I'm seeing and this rather nuanced symptomatology that they're now saying they feel better you know, with their chest wall corrected is something I'm starting to realize. And I think you need a volume of patients to study. And that's, that's something we're very interested in developing in the UK, uh, uh, tr studies where you have a large volume of patients, which is difficult yeah. um, to identify these patients which will benefit from a functional perspective. I'd like to add something. If the patient, 20%, we have seen the scoliosis. Yeah. If the patient has slight scoliosis, we sent the orthopedic consultation before operation, because of the which one the first treatment. Mm. Uh, the other one is if the patient has a complex uh, anomaly, I mean like Marfan syndrome or uh, the Noon syndrome, we sent the uh, genetics to consultate about the other way. I mean, uh, the others, uh, the same, I mean, the echocardiography, usually if the patient has a, some complaint about cardiac, we sent the cardiology consultation uh, routinely, uh, the just the 10% or 20% patient. Hmm. And it's interesting about the indications for pectus excavatum surgery within a, a Marfan setting that we're now offering combined cardiac surgical procedures with a pectus correction. And that's something, again, you, if you have a large volume of practice, there are ways you can perform these operations and the combined procedures safely. So one of the concerns that cardiac surgeons would have is if you're doing a fairly, uh, a fairly aggressive reconstruction of the chest wall, issues of bleeding after surgery, etc. But there are ways you can, I and mean, we do a, a, a very simple open NUS procedure where we use uh, bars with patients having uh, cardiac surgery for their underlying aortic problems, or etc. And that's a very nice combination of procedures that, that often give patients both uh, benefit from management of their cardiac problem, but also benefit from improvement of their correction of their chest wall. And that's something we're also interested in developing. 
Does that have any implications from an emergency reoperation perspective? Very good. So, so you need to um, be very clear with your residents about how they remove the bars in a hurry. And we, we use a very simple protocol that we have the instruments available um, at the bedside. And if the patient were to tamponade or there were, were to be a problem, they can remove the bars in a very simple way uh, immediately to, to, so it doesn't um, stop an emergency system not to be performed if necessary. Hasn't happened yet, but yeah. And if we maybe move on a little bit towards talking about surgical strategies, there's clearly been a huge move towards doing minimally invasive surgery, yeah. both for carinatums and excavatums. Um, more so obviously in the expertum group. Perhaps could, we, could you talk about a little bit about that in your practice and how you would select those patients that are appropriate or would you, are all patients appropriate for minimally invasive surgery to no. some degree? Uh, there is the little, uh, I think in my practice 10% did open surgery. Mm. I have a practice, still I am doing the Ravitch operation. Open surgery is the, there is the option for some difficult patient. For example, arcuatum, I mean, the, there's the big uh, deformity about the carinatum, the high uh, deformity near the uh, manibrium sterni. The deformity is just uh, can be corrected with the Ravitch operation. That's why Ravitch, the still option to treatment of the complex deformity. Uh, that's why uh, I hate Ravitch operation because of the long and too much bloody operation mm -hmm. and then difficult to patient uh, recovery uh, period. And, uh, but there's the still option for some patient. Mm. Right. So, so similar number actually, 10% of my patients would have an open procedure in the excavatum group um, and 90% would get a NUS procedure. It's interesting for me, I think Mustafa's experience is greater than mine, I still use still rotation and depth as uh, an indication for an open procedure versus a NUS. And so I've had several patients where the sternum is essentially completely rotated and I find Personally, I think the aesthetic result is better for me, in my hands with a modified NUS, but Mustafa has a lot more experience yes. with NUS procedures than I am. Just a comment about more complex procedures. I think um, horseshoe pectus, pectus arcunutum, I think that's always a challenging uh, deformity. It's a mixed deformity with combinations of carinatum and excavatum. Okay. They're usually not amenable for any bracing therapy because of the nature or the etiology of the deformity. And so I think they often do benefit from open procedures as they often have a much more complex yes, more problem. Complex, yeah. And how about um, minimum invasive surgery for the carinatums? Because I know that's something mm. that's a little bit contentious within the literature. What's yeah. your I, I, I think it's difficult because these patients are not generally coming to you with significant symptoms. And, you know, the modified ravage is a, is a, a very aggressive break and reset of the chest wall and I think you need to be very clear with the patient you know what they're what the indications for surgery are rather interestingly in our group of carinatum patients we have 300 patients now that we've treated for bracing therapy a 30 percent of patients will still have symptoms so there's obviously something we're not we're missing regarding why patients have symptoms of breathlessness with carinatum when there's clearly no functional cardiac or, or pulmonary issue and I suspect it's something to do with the way the chest wall moves. I think it's a chest wall dynamic issue. The mechanics of the chest wall are somehow affected and it's often exertional breathlessness. So for my, in my practice the vast majority would be offered a bracing therapy. Um, we have a small number of patients usually age related so they will be over the age of 20 uh, with a stiff chest wall. Um, in Mustafa's practice it would be Abraham's procedure. Yes. In my practice 
what we'll be doing is using a, a very mo a very limited ravage operation where you're doing very small incisions, you're basically shaving the cartilage down and doing one partial osteotomy, and then you're using a bracing therapy treatment subsequent to that. And that's been a small cohort of patients very successful in combining two different approaches. So the idea is you create flexibility through a, a small operation, less morbidity, a quicker recovery period, and then you're adding bracing therapy to that treatment option for a period of six months to a year to allow a permanent correction. It does require patient motivation, and that's one of the problems. Patients often self-select that they want a, a quick fix. Um, with bracing, it's not a quick fix. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a prolonged program which requires compliance, and they need to uh, you know, sign up for that. And I think that's one of the problems I've found, you know, the, the psychological element that you need to get patients on board for. Perhaps we, we're sort of running a little bit with time, but maybe we can talk about your use of the Abraham's procedure because that's something particularly novel, which yeah. uh, I'm sure people will be very interested in, in yeah. hearing about. I, the Abraham's procedure, in my opinion, I mean, uh, there is the if the patient has a pressure is uh, high than 10 kilogram, according to my device, I am I am put in the bar, mm -hmm. like the Abrahamson explained. Uh, usually we leave the bar two years and then remove the bar. But in other way, I mean, I started uh, 15 years ago the Abramson procedure. So far I have nearly 200 Abramson operation I have done. But the last three years now I have the breast therapy, more than 500 patients I have. Now I believe that the breast therapy is the most favorable treatment or the patient because of cheap, easy to apply, and any time patient can leave the breast. And that's why I think the breast therapy must be some protocol, mm. and some therapists start the breast therapy, and every month or every three months follow up properly. I mean, the treatment will be uh, uh, the option for the uh, carinatum patient. And just the stiff thorax or the, uh, the patient, if the, uh, more than 25 years old, uh, the, uh, the surgery must be option mm -hmm. uh, for this little patient. I mean, not the two, uh, every patient uh, sent to operation, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And um, Mr. Hunt, you, one of your particular interests is bracing, and mm. I know you've been doing something very novel with the yes. compressive, non-compressive bracing. It's a, it's a very, yeah, it's a very simple technique. We, so we use this thing called manipulation, which is basically a physiotherapy, sports physiotherapy technique uh, of soft, soft tissue release. So you do a, a kind of massage prior to performing the procedure. Um, very simple, takes 20 minutes. It involves warming the chest, using local anaesthetic to numb the skin, and then using infrared massage, and then a, a physiotherapy technique where you're just pushing on the cartilage in patients with flexible chest walls. This is patients with, with, uh, with low PSIs, young patients. And the idea is that you correct the chest wall and then position the brace. And the idea of the brace is then worn for a period of time. We, in our program, we, the brace stays on for five days without being removed. Uh, again, a commitment by the patients, but you need to get them on board. And then we start the program with a very intense wearing schedule where we wear the, they wear the brace for three months, essentially permanently, just removing it for short periods each day. Um, and then we start a weaning pro program. So, so the way we've developed our bracing schedule is to do all the intense work at the beginning. And what we've found with that method 
um, is that the compliance is much better. The, the patient, if they feel they're improving very rapidly, they see a, an improvement within a few days of starting the therapy, they're much more likely to complete the yes. therapy. And I've, and I've studied various bracing programs around the world, and if you set the schedule up so that you're doing it in reverse, which is what traditionally would happen, that you would start wearing the brace very slowly and slowly build up the program, we found that the compliance was much lower. People gave up. They weren't seeing an improvement. They were committed with time, but without seeing an improvement, therefore they stopped wearing the brace. So, so we've changed the, the scheduling, and by wearing it very intensely at the beginning and then slowly weaning it off over a period of time, we found that our compliance rates have, uh, are, have been much better. And I think that if you can get the patient to wear the brace for the period that's uh, uh, required, the opportunity for permanent correction is, is, is very high. Yeah. And yourself, uh, with regards to compliance, do you think there are any key sort of pearls of wisdom to improve uh, patient compliance? About breast therapy, and I mean, in my patient, usually it's six months and one year between the patient get the result. Uh, but we need some more support to the patient mm. about uh, the way of the, which one is the best. Uh, otherwise, I mean, uh, I, I, I noticed that you have a, a nice follow-up program. Mm. Uh, I, I, I have to learn uh, to uh, like your program. I, I started my uh, patient for the, my patient. Uh, just I am trying to learn the breast therapy more <laughs> than surgery. Yeah. I think in the future, uh, more breast therapy. Must but like lots of things, it's nuanced. So, you know, as you learn, I learn every time I have a patient, I learn something subtly new. And I think it's just developing that body of experience. And certainly I found bracing therapy is like that. You just, so many little nuances that you suddenly realize, for example, having the therapy much more intensively at the beginning seems to really help the final result because patients are much more committed to wearing the brace. So, so you know, changing the program to, to, to allow intensive wear at the beginning seems to make a big difference in our program. And so finally, really, where do we go from here with regards to innovations in vector surgery and how we're going to show the community that this is an important entity and needs to be taken forward? Um, uh, about vector surgery, I mean, the, the, the surgery is simple, but the difficult, I mean. Mm. <laughs> A simple uh, 15 minutes, but there's the result, something mortal, I mean. That's why... Uh, the the training program must be very uh, uh, be cautious. I mean, uh, uh, the don't uh, uh, I mean underestimate the uh, surgical program. Uh, and the other way in the breast therapy and then vacuum therapy must be uh, treat the new generation. I mean, new surgeon and new uh, chest physician. And the other way. I mean, for me, it's applying thoracic surgical rules. You know, if I have a patient coming to see me for, with a lung cancer, I will offer the right operation for that cancer. Pectors needs to be the same. You need to have a comprehensive approach. You need to see surgeons who have experience, that means volume, and they need to have an opportunity to offer them any treatment that's appropriate for that patient. So it's an opportunity that, that if, you, if you see a patient in front of you that a brace would be the best option, a brace is what they get offered. If it's a NUS operation, a NUS operation, a ravage, a ravage. So you need to see a surgeon who has expertise and experience in all, all facets of pectus treatment and that requires volume and that requires specialist centers essentially, I think. International collaborations. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, another point, I mean, uh, the, 
NASA operation, it is not uh, like the every year two or three operation you couldn't do. I mean, no. you have need the center, the, you have your volume must be a year, more than 20 or 30, I don't know. Mm. And then that's why it is easy operation, but uh, the, the result is sometimes uh, the mortal or morbidity can be high than you expect. Indeed. I agree. And it's interesting the UK experience because of the SCS database that we have access to. We, we know that very few centres do more than 20 operations in, in two years, let alone one year. So you're absolutely correct. You need to have a, a centre which has a volume of practice. And for me, I agree, 20 to 30 cases a, a, a year at least to yes. develop that, that, that expertise. Yes. yes. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.